Good morning, everyone. It is the 24th of October. My name is Lorna Denny, and I'm joined today by Alex Byrne and Bushra Ahmed. It was a good week for equity markets in the US and Europe, certainly, but another difficult week for bond markets as they attempted to navigate expectations for interest rates in the face of persistent inflation. We will look briefly at the US Treasury bond market's reaction shortly, but one surprising area of calm was the UK gilts market, which took the resignation of Liz Truss as UK Prime Minister very much in its stride. It seems the event had been largely discounted, Alex. Morning, Lorna. That's right. Gilt markets dealt with two varying degrees of news, I guess, last week. Uh, although the gilt markets were somewhat relieved at the departure of the British Prime Minister, they remained slightly tempered by the prospect of yet another week of upheaval in action and uncertainty around British politics. Although investors further scaled back bets on a 1% interest rate hike next month by the BUE, the expectation likely by some point today is that the next PM will be installed. The ex-Chancellor Rishi Sunak is the likely contender, widely seen as a safe and steady pair of hands and one of the early proponents of fiscal responsibility, foreshadowing much of what we saw play out during Truss's economic expansion proposals. Sterling was also calmer with this prospect, this being strengthened as it looked less and less likely the previous PM Boris Johnson will return to the top job. Drama continues but hopefully will end pretty soon as you suggest there, but on that currency market theme, Japanese authorities intervened reportedly to the tune of $30 billion last week as the yen reached a level last seen in 1990 against the dollar. That's right, and it all comes back to the central story of this year, and that is the aggressive interest rate hiking intention of the Fed, in contrast to the BOJ, which has suggested its ultra policy will remain in place for two to three years. So naturally, capital flows into the dollar. We don't foresee much change in this policy going forward by either the BOJ or the Fed. BOJ and politics in Japan is very stable and realistically we haven't seen anywhere near the same inflation issues in Japan as we have had elsewhere. Again, reminding ourselves that Japan has come from a very different inflation and growth environment over the last two decades than Europe and the US have. However, the question remains, if this divergence continues for the foreseeable future and both central banks remain steadfast in their approaches, there is an ongoing pressure on the BOJ to rein their approach in, to support the currency, which is clearly having a real impact on underlying companies in the economy. I would say, however, a weak yen is certainly not a new operating phenomenon for management in Japan, and most hedge a large majority of this risk away. Yes, that's interesting. But this aggressive policy from the Fed is, of course, their attempt to put the brakes on what the IMF has referred to as a runaway train of inflation. But it is pushing expectations of the Fed's terminal rate higher and higher in the meantime. The market continues to expect 75 basis points in both November and December. The terminal rate, that is the peak rate for the cycle, could hit 5% by May of next year in that scenario. We are already seeing some of the knock-on impacts of these higher rates in people's mortgage, car and other finance payments. The necessity for further rises, however, comes from an apparent re-acceleration in the broad array of everyday items and services that make up that inflation component. Yes, and that, that drove the yield on the benchmark 10-year US Treasury above 4.25% last week. Worth noting, it was barely above 1% at the start of this year. And the yield curve is still inverted, and that's often a, a precursor to recession. But elsewhere, the Chinese Communist Party Congress voted for a historic third term of office for President Xi. As a background to the Congress, the announcement of Q3 GDP data was postponed. Not surprising, perhaps, that these data proved somewhat disappointing to the Chinese government. 
That's right, Lauren. In some ways, it was slightly disappointing. GDP data just released was 3.9%. That is markedly above the expectation of 3.4% and the nearly flat level we saw last quarter. This is despite, however, continuation of the zero COVID policy, which stifles growth and shuts down entire precincts, closing off China from the global economy. Although that growth number is a positive surprise, it remains well off the previously targeted levels and moves into a scenario of more steady but slower growth for the economy. Added to that, October CPI grew at its fastest level since April 2020. China remains unimmune from that global inflation pressure. And we have indeed seen other indications of a rising global inflation dynamic. We saw the UK and Canada, for example, though perhaps encouraging data from the Eurozone. Somewhat, yes. We have perhaps seen some plateauing, although likely temporary, of inflation in the Eurozone of late. Reiterating the situation, it's important, however, unlike the US at the moment, the Eurozone doesn't have the same kind of economic overheating that's driving inflation. That is, inflation isn't being supported by higher demand, large increases in wages and so forth. But importantly, what is driving inflation is energy and particularly gas prices because of the geographical exposure to the Russian war in Ukraine. What this means is that it is inflationary but contractionary. The higher energy prices has a worsening effect on living standards without a betterment of rewards for the working. We will likely continue to see inflation in Europe being driven by the energy factor throughout the winter, but for the time being at least, a slightly warmer autumn and some better storage levels than expected has avoided inflation rising further this time around. Yes, that is encouraging. Turning to you now, Bushra, and welcome back. There was an interesting report from the International Energy Agency with regard to carbon dioxide emissions. That's right, Lorna. As a nice surprise, we heard in last week's international agency report that even though there will be an increase in carbon dioxide emissions from the burning of fossil fuels this year, the increase is expected to be less than 1%, bringing the total to 33.8 billion tonnes. And we have the electric vehicles and an uptake of renewables to thank for this. Turns out that due to strong climate policy actions by governments, and in response to the global energy crisis caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we're seeing real structural changes in the energy economy with heavy investment and a shift towards renewables to replace the natural gas supplies, which have been withheld from the market. For instance, EU has generated a quarter of its power from renewable sources since Russia launched its invasion, which is a record for the time period. In fact, the world has hit record growth for this year in solar and wind power, generating more than 700 terawatt hours of energy. Global hydropower has also increased this year and is expected to contribute over one-fifth of the growth in renewables. So even though demand for coal has increased as the invasion resulted in very high natural gas prices and carbon dioxide emissions are forecast to grow, in the words of the IEA, the International Energy Agency, the increase has been relatively small and considerably outweighed by the expansion of renewables. However, the need of the hour is to keep on this trajectory and do better, since scientists warn that emissions should be consistently and rapidly decreasing to keep the one and a half degree aim alive. These are genuinely encouraging developments, and that leads us on to the COP27 gathering, which will begin in Egypt early next month. After the drama of last year's COP26 in Glasgow, are we expecting further big announcements from this COP? Yes, less than two weeks now before COP27 climate negotiations begin in Egypt, so starting on 6th November running through till 18th November. This COP, compared to last year's COP26, has actually often been referred to as an implementation COP. So whilst last year at the announcement COP we saw a sea of pledges, this year we're expecting to see one 
more information about how these pledges will be fulfilled, so the action plans, and governments to provide more details on their climate roadmaps. Two, to report on existing targets. And three, it's said that a number of more ambitious climate pledges may have been held off till now. So potentially some new pledges and ideally an upward revision of some existing targets. Of course, this COP may cover some areas that were not fully covered in Glasgow. I also expect to see more on just transition, i.e. the promised climate finance from developed countries for climate mitigation, adaptation and loss and damage for the most vulnerable countries. It will now be interesting to see if the level of climate ambition in Egypt will fail or match that that was there in Glasgow, especially as the discussions happen in the backdrop of a less stable economy due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the resulting energy crisis and persistent inflation. We will certainly keep tabs on any developments over the course of November. But for the next week, highlights include meetings from the Bank of Japan and the European Central Bank. Few new announcements are expected, but potentially we could see 75 basis points hike from the ECB. Otherwise, the flash PMI data will be closely watched, Alex. That's right, Lauren. Thursday, we have the ECB announcement, as mentioned, widely priced to be a 75 basis point rise. We also, as mentioned, have a Bank of Japan meeting. Although pressures have grown, capitulation now is unlikely and it would have severe market implications, so no changes are expected there. The European and US initial flash PMIs are in. For Europe, a slightly more positive view on services, whilst expectations for manufacturing continue to fall, although both numbers should remain well below the 50 expansionary zone. In the US, a similar story, but the difference being expectations remain that both should continue to expand rather than contract. And it's another big week for the third quarter reporting season, Alex. That's right, Laura. Last week we had results from Tesla, which beat earnings but missed on revenues. This is despite producing 50% more cars than this time last year. Some signals of supply constraints continue and a struggle to make some consumer demand. Elsewhere, however, we had P&G's results, obviously a large consumer name, which gives us a very good indication of the underlying economy, beating earnings on its higher prices, but an overall drop in volume. We've had about a quarter of earnings results so far this season. Surprises so far have been very positive, around 85% of the companies surprising on the upside. Results, an average surprise of 3%, with communication services, healthcare, IT and industrials all posting strong results so far. This week, we also have earnings from large tech names, Meta, previously Facebook, alongside Microsoft and Twitter. Thank you both very much indeed. Thank you, Lorna. Thank you.